Welcome to Higher ID, the podcast where we talk about all things instructional design and higher ed. We're your hosts, Christy J. Woods and Dr. Jess Seitler, and we are excited to bring you our next episode. This week, we have a special guest, William Cronier, who is an instructional designer, program manager at EduFlow, and the co-creator, designer, and head facilitator of two very popular courses at EduFlow Academy. More on that in a bit. Today, we'll be talking about Will's work with EduFlow and his expertise in social learning. Will, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I I, I, am... I'm quite a fan of the of the podcast. I was um, telling Christy a bit earlier, and um, yeah, I, I really like what what the kind of tone that you have in this podcast, and it's it feels like we are friends already, <laughs> even though we <laughs> haven't really had long conversations before. So yeah, it is uh, such a pleasure. Uh, yeah, that's awesome. Well, thanks for saying that. That makes my heart happy. I'm sure it makes Jess's heart happy too. It, it does, and and we are friends. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, let's start, Well, if you would tell us a little bit about your history in instructional design, what you're doing now. And I know you're at EduFlow now, so how did you begin working with EduFlow? I know that's a lot, so yeah, <laughs> just tell um, us your story. <laughs> I, I think like very few instru- instructional designers get to say that they had like a conventional, you know, I studied instructional design, then I went into instructional design. I think yeah. went into the industry in a bit of a roundabout way. Um, mm-hmm. I uh, just had a, a strange background in, I studied marketing and I did a BA in humanities and specialized in interactive media. And then for a long time, I thought I was going to go into the marketing industry. And um, I realized that I'm not really into that <laughs> as much. <laughs> when I started teaching marketing uh, after I graduated with my honors degree, I realized that I liked teaching way more. And then I realized that I liked designing experiences more. And then I got really into the design part and I realized that I missed people. <laughs> and um, the, the, it, it kind of feels like uh, working at EduFlow was a match made in heaven. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I worked at, as an instructional designer at an online program manager like yeah so we designed executive level courses and it was mm-hmm. like an amazing learning experience and i learned with a lot of really really talented people um but then i started missing people <laughs> like <laughs> interacting with learners and getting feedback about the actual experiences um and then i saw this facebook post where someone uh, you know posted about working at eduflow and then i um uh, just on a whim applied and I was very lucky to to get the position, um, and uh, yeah. So, but it, the amazing thing about working in a like I'm not going to say startup, but like a, a small company is you can kind of like grow your role to suit your strengths, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, I yeah, I, I started out kind of like as an instructional designer, working on um, creating templates and stuff, and then. Um, we, when we wanted to expand the academy a bit, I, I was able to play to my strengths and um, start working on these um, cohort learning experiences, which was um, really, really fun. And I got yeah. to then, you know, meet people and start, you know, um, interacting, which really kind of like filled a bit of a hole in my heart. And I feel like I'm <laughs> having a, a, I'm in a very privileged position to um, kind of see that entire loop um, and get amazing input and feedback um, uh, about learning experiences that we create together. 
Yeah. And I'd argue too, you know, you started in marketing, thought you might go into marketing. I feel like a large part of your role is marketing. It's selling these courses and getting people excited to experience edge of flow and experience cohort-based learning. That is yeah. huge. So yeah. you, you've come back to that too. <laughs> yeah. And actually I've been doing a lot of research into this industry that's instructional design adjacent called customer education. And mm. Um, it, it, customer education is, is perfect for, for my strengths because um, I have that marketing background and customer education is to some extent a marketing exercise in an organization. So you teach people oh, how yes. to use a product um, and by teaching them, you can turn them into brand advocates. Um, so that it, 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 like articulating that has been a really kind of eye-opening thing for me. Um, thinking about my role in the organization as well. That's really great. So speaking of meeting people, uh, we first met because you were the facilitator and the designer or co-creator of the cohort-based Eduflow Academy's instructional design principles for course creation course um, <laughs> that, of course, Christy uh, pulled me into. She's like, I'm doing this. Are you doing this? I said, of course I'm doing this. Let's do it. Um, so that's where we first met all three. Well, not all three of us, but kind of as a group. Can you share a bit more about the Eduflow Academy and, and within that, the two free cohort-based courses that are offered? So the um, instructional design principles and the designing social learning experiences? Sure. Yeah. So it, it, it's kind of a, a, a bit of a weird origin story. So Eduflow Academy was originally a bunch of self-paced courses. Um, and then uh, one day I was having a, a just a lunchtime catch up with David, who is the CEO of Eduflow. And then we uh, kind of were just talking about how what we could do with Eduflow Academy. Um, and then I suggested this thing called a cohort-based course, um, mm. which is the idea of putting people in a big group or putting a bunch of learners in a group, having, having a start date and then every week you release material and then the group goes through the material together. And um, the moment we kind of attached the cohort learning buzzword to the learning experience, it, it, it seemed to become like, it, it was kind of like a really amazing selling point. And yeah. um, it, uh, the more research I did about like this, I don't want to say it's a phenomenon, but like this trend of cohort-based learning, uh, the more I realized kind of like why <laughs> they've become so popular. Um, and it's mm -hmm. because especially during the pandemic, people sort of, just like I did, people started missing each other. <laughs> and mm -hmm. um, learning together is a, it, it's a really amazing experience. Um, and it's something that we've been doing all our lives. Um, you know, we, we go to school together and we go to university together. And then some, somehow, I don't know why it happens, we le leave school and we leave university and then we start learning by ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that kind of makes us crave community. Um, and maybe that's one of the reasons why we are interested in this format. But anyway, so um, the two courses, uh, we've got the Instructional Design Principles course that uses the ADI process as like a backbone um, where we also use a code or a product project-based learning like methodology. So you pick your own project and you create it as you learn about all the, the key principles. And that's a, mm -hmm. a way of, of us like um, sneaking in the vegetables, um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, but to, so to, helpful. 
Yeah, and then you, at the end of the course, you walk away with uh, like something useful. Um, yeah. you, you, it could be a, a portfolio piece, or it could even be something that you want to roll out in your own organizations. Um, yeah, I totally did that. Sorry to cut yeah, you off, but um, I used that. Um, one, I, I want to go back to, I pulled Jess into it because when you get accepted into one of the courses, I don't know if you still do this because I did like cohort two or something ridiculously early. Um, but you said like, if there's an extra person you think would like to go through the course with you, put their email. And I was like, Jess, do this yeah. with me, um, which I loved because I think that that helps again with that community and connection that you're speaking to. So um, that's how Jess got pulled into it. But I totally used that project to help create a SME training course for my organization that I was at that didn't have any training. And it kept coming up that folks just didn't understand what creating a course was. And so to be able to do that, oh, it was huge. So yeah, it was awesome. What about you, Jess? What was your project? So my project, I was really excited about, you know, at first Christy was like, do you want to do something? And, and we're always asking each other, do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? And so go, doing it together was really, really motivational, but also with that cohort base. And I always think of these things like secret missions and uh, thinking about, okay, what, do, what am I going to do? So we we're all doing our own thing but we were doing it together and and coming up with these products. And so I worked on a design thinking project. Um, so I built out on Adobe website, design thinking, the process of it to help students learn about design thinking and how they could use it in design challenges, um, a project-based event that I help develop for students. So, um, thinking about the United Nations development goals, the sustainable development goals on a local level. So, so it was a really great opportunity to do that. And also just a, a really good social opportunity to connect and meet so many people. And of course, um, that kind of mission, it like you have a certain amount of time and, and complete with everybody. So you're just going step in step with everybody on those on those things. So, and also it was a great um, opportunity to like rethink and reimagine the principles of, of Addy and, and where I can use them. Yeah. And so um, uh, one of the kind of mysteries that, that we've come across was um, we have been getting a lot of people who have a lot of experience in the industry joining the course that in the title says principles and then mm. for a long time we were completely puzzled and I, I'm, I'm still somewhat puzzled but like hearing stories like jess's you know mm -hmm. about like these different reasons is, is very illuminating um because we'll have like professors of instructional design doing a principles course and they are having a blast in the experience mm -hmm. and yeah. i always i'm always like but are they learning anything and then i, I like you know, hearing hearing Jess's like um, kind of like testimonial, I guess, is uh, like a really nice uh, like way of, of 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 like examining how people get different things out of the experiences. You know, yeah. um, uh, uh, one big point of feedback we get is that people love doing the course to see how the course is designed. Um, mm. So they, they always <laughs> say like they love the meta ness of it. You know, uh, yeah. Um, and and uh, uh, yeah, 
like it is absolutely fascinating and the amount of value that experienced people bring to the, the cohorts is just like immeasurable the value in terms of your interactions with other participants is incredible because you help other people and then mm-hmm. value in terms of the feedback that we get from from you know people with so much experience so um I, I, the, one of the main reasons why i say that the courses are co-created is because we get people with a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge um, and they go through the, the course and then they give us like amazing tips um, and yeah. we use those tips uh, like we read everything all the feedback that people give and we, we like are very serious about making sure that all the material we we have there is accurate and um, you know we don't want to uh, promote anything that's like wrong or, or you know and we've made many like big and small revisions um, to make sure that what we have is um, accurate and useful um, mm-hmm. and valuable, I guess. Um, so, um, Jess, thank you so much for your contribution and helping us to to build the principles course. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, I, I thinking about the humanity of it too. Like, I feel like as we get into our careers, sometimes we delve in and we don't. We feel like we don't have that community of practice sometimes, especially there's a lot of lone instructional designers or even working remotely. You don't feel like maybe that you can say, hey, do a brainstorm with me. You want to can you come dissect this course with me? Because I feel like I'm stuck and I'm I'm, I'm not moving forward on something. Um, so it was a really great space to kind of just have those people who are like, hey, I, I see what you've done, but I don't understand this. And you're like, oh, thank goodness. Mm-hmm. Then you can see those barriers or kind of those spots where you're missing. So it was really enlightening that way. And also as um, someone who has been an instructional designer for a little while, um, it was kind of also motivational because it wasn't a task that I had to do for work. It was something mm, yeah. I got mm. to do because for fun. <laughs> for fun because I was really interested in the topic. So that was like self like very motivational and it was definitely very meta because I was like thinking about design learning about design and designing (laughs) yeah yeah that's awesome that's so cool (laughs) that's really good Jess that got me good (laughs) oh so well we've talked a little bit about the principles course but I'd love to hear because I don't think Jess I don't think you've taken the social learning experiences I haven't taken it either so I'd love to hear about that course and um in general, how Edgeflow Academy kind of creates this online community of practice for that community. If you can kind of go into those pieces, that'd be awesome. Yeah. So um, the Designing Social Learning Experiences course, um, I, I guess it, it it is what it says in, on the tin, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, the, the course has um, three big modules. So we also have, a, it's also in three weeks and it's also cohort-based and it's also project-based. Um, and in this course, um, we get really, uh, really get into like how you design a, an experience for your unique context. Um, so in the first um, l- like week, it's all about um, uh, figuring out what social learning is and what it means to you, and then also how you can how you can communicate um, uh, like uh, the value of social learning to your uh, decision makers in your organization. Um, so um, the first like project that you submit is an email to whoever like you need to convince that they need to buy into this project. 
um, mm. and it's and a ni- it's a nice kind of front because in the email you also have to say this is what social learning is and this is why we need to use it. So um, we kind of like arm you with the the tools that you can use to build your arguments. Um, and then in week two, we really dig into the complexity of what social learning is um, because it means different things to different people. Um, so um, we uh, introduce a like a framework where we can classify different types of um, social learning experiences. And then we think about how we can design for each of those unique experiences because um, the challenging thing about social learning is it's a it's a like an incredibly large umbrella term you know mm-hmm. um, social learning can be um, cooperative learning um, it can be collaborative learning and people you know insist that there's a difference between it the two people can also think about you know modeling and all of these other things so what is social learning and what is it you know is a water cooler conversation um, social learning or is mm. workshop social learning. So we, we break that down um, and then we take that classification and then we start working on strategies and tactics for facilitating a learning experience in, in each unique context. Um, and then in the final week, we talk about implementing your program and then also measuring um, the, the value of a social learning program. The challenge for measuring, you know, the uh, or, yeah, measuring success or measuring how valuable it has been is um, sometimes difficult to look at it through a traditional training lens because mm. usually you want to you have a goal at the beginning of a training experience. You know, like we have this performance problem, and then at the end um, we have this learning intervention, and we want to see how to what extent it fixes the problem. But social learning has so many so much more value that it can bring beyond meeting those learning objectives if you Mm. even had learning objectives to begin with um (laughs) so you know like how do you measure the value of a community of practice like if a bunch of people have a lunch and learn um you know like how do you measure that How, how do you prove to people who are approving this lunch and learn like how are you going to convince them to keep like allowing us to keep learning together um so we wrestle with all of these different um, uh, kind of like things and then at the end you again have like a, a strategy and an implementation plan for your own social learning pilot program and then hopefully that pilot program is a success and then um, you can expand it and um, have like a, a something bigger um, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah we've just we are just about to start cohort five of that project or of that course um, wow. and yeah it, it's definitely um one of my favorite ones so far. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, that's super awesome. And I actually, I did start um, the social learning course, but due to um, a death in the family, I wasn't able to complete oh, it, but I still I'm have so access. Thank you. Um, but I still have access. So I do go in there and <laughs> still look around and slowly read things and think about things. And Speaking of that, I was wondering if you could share some examples because you know, as instructional designers, yeah. like what are, what are some examples so we can Apply like it. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, what are some examples of social learning activities that can be incorporated into online learning environments, and how do you think these differ from possibly like in person learning approaches? Mm. So, um, I. 
uh, as an academic, you can probably kind of, as academics, you can probably appreciate how um, people get really fussy about definitions. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I've, I've really enjoyed, uh, so Tony Bingham and Marsha Connor have a, like a really basic but great definition of social learning in their book called um, The New Social Learning. And they, mm. they describe it as um, social learning can be defined as joining with others to make sense of and create new ideas. Um, mm. And if we take that as like a definition, social learning activities can be nearly anything, right? Yeah. Um, as I mentioned earlier, it can be, you know, two people running into each other at, and, and talking about something. And if the two people learn something, then that's social learning. Um, at, or it can be a structured workshop um, you know, with breakout rooms and every person having a unique role in the breakout room. And, you know, so the scope is enormous, um, mm. which is why we, we came up with just a way to classify different experiences so that we can create more focused um, strategies and tactics to facilitate them. Um, so uh, we created this thing called the collaborative learning gamut. Um, and mm. I like the word gamut because artists use it to describe the scope of color um, it of, oh. of like a computer screen, for example. Mm -hmm. And, the, you know, so you have like your reds and your greens and the, it's just a way to classify them. Um, uh, so we have two axes. So the, the first axis is um, real time to self-paced and the second axis is um, uh, formal and informal. Um, mm -hmm. And the formal and informal axis comes from Guy Wallace's um, Structured Social Learning Continuum, which is a really uh, cool thing to read up on if you're interested. Um, yeah. And uh, based on the quadrant that you're in for the specific, um, uh, based on the, the um, matrix, um, we can start like classifying the different type of learning experiences. And mm. because it's a, um, kind of two axes, something can be more or less, you know, something can be more formal than the other and something can be more self-paced than the other um, yeah. or, or more real time or, or synchronous or asynchronous or whatever you want to call it. Um, and so now that we've got these four quadrants, we can start naming them and we can start classifying different types of learning activities, right? So mm -hmm. um, a real time formal learning experience, for example, is a workshop. It's a structured um, workshop. And if in this space, People love using tactics and strategies from the cooperative learning space. So um, Kagan and Johnson and Johnson, and um, they've got some amazing exercises. So if you're interested in learning about that space, 100% recommended. Um, then uh, self-paced and formal, we can think about things like um, uh, we call it a journey, but you can think of, of like peer feedback, asynchronous mm -hmm. peer feedback. Um, it's mm -hmm. structured. Um, it's uh, you know, like we've got goals and things and everyone has to do a certain steps to complete the task. And then on the informal and um, uh, real time, so the live synchronous informal side, there we have that water cooler conversation. Or um, sure. if you're talking to a mentor and you, you, you just, at the end of the, like maybe the structured conversation, you learn something, you know, that's that type of learning experience. And then at a self-paced and informal um a learning experience that's kind of like a reddit group mm -hmm. um you know so you ask a question about woodworking for example and then you learn something but you don't have to all be there at the same time there's no no structure there isn't there's some structure but there's no 
you know, like there isn't a, a, a lot of, there aren't a lot of like things keeping you constrained. You can ask whatever mm -hmm. you want. You don't have to participate. Um, they, you're not going to get graded on your participation in this random group. Yeah. Um, so now that we've got these classifications, we can start thinking about specific activities in each of these different um, quadrants. So yeah. um, here we have like, uh, let's go back to this, the self-paced and informal one. Um, mm -hmm. a, 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 we call that a collective. So we have um, wikis, for example, um, right. you know, so, and, and wiki is in, in the collaborative learning literature. They love wikis. They love talking about that. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, like a comment section on the YouTube channel or a comment section right. after a lecture or, or whatever, all of these things can, we can, or just a poll on LinkedIn, they can all be, you know, classified in this quadrant. And then um, in a journey, um, like I said, even the, the structure of a cohort-based course is a journey. Um, it's, there, there's some asynchronousness to it, but we still mm -hmm. have, you can, it's self-paced, but there's still some time yeah. that pushes you along um, yeah. and some structure that pushes you along. So, uh, um, and then uh, like in the real-time formal classroom uh, or school teachers will be very familiar with this type of learning experience. So you have... Um, Think, pair, share, jigsaw, team-based yeah. learning, all of this mm -hmm. stuff is uh, like in, in that quadrant. And um, that for me, like thinking about learning activities in this, like in, in this context has been like really eye-opening because it means that we can focus our efforts more uh, and start classifying different types of activities and strategies and tactics. Um, and then in the designing social learning experiences course, we start kind of like brainstorming um, mm -hmm. all these amazing. So we have, I've got like an amazing collection of different activities that people have that are plotted in this matrix. Um, oh, cool. And uh, yeah, yeah, I, I'm hoping to like publish that at some point. Ooh, you should. Yeah. Academically, well, but just publish it in uh, like LinkedIn or something so everyone can have access. Oh, yeah, that's great. One thing I was thinking about, I was like, while you were talking about the social learning gamut, I was like, wow, I think our podcast is social learning. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, like it's almost like Chris more asynchronous. Well, when we're recording, it's synchronous because we're learning. I'm learning a ton, by the way. <laughs> I'm just like in awe from all the information that you're sharing. Well, we have so many good resources to share with like, folks. In, and now imagine you after this podcast, it's going to be on LinkedIn, and then we'll probably have a discussion right. in the comments. So then, exactly, that's, that's yeah. another yeah. like. It's very meta. Yeah. The second part of your question. Uh, sorry, JC, you were saying? Oh, I said no. I love it. No, I just you know, having this epiphany while you're describing the social learning gamut. I was like, oh man, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you also mentioned like uh, the difference between um, online and offline. Um, yeah. And yeah, I, 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 I think depending on where you are on the gap, like a workshop, there won't be much of a difference. Right. Like you can have a, a like Zoom workshop now, nowadays, like can be really, really good. And to some extent, yeah. they can even be more accessible if you think about like live transcripting. Um, right. and, yes. and, and the fact that you can have a conversation on the side, ask clarifying questions, and then someone else will help you out. It, the, the kind of like affordances of that are incredible, like absolutely remarkable. Um, so, and also when we think about peer reviews, so peer reviews offline are incredibly hard to do. You know, mm -hmm. you've got a handout paper and you've got to distribute and 
uh, yeah, I guess like uh, you can tell people to pass the page to the left, um, but <laughs> you have very little control about um, how that's facilitated in, 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 yeah. in, in terms of like pre-work and um, uh, um, we call it feedback onboarding. So we, we have this whole process where we teach people how to give feedback before we like yeah. introduce them to the, the P-feedback process. Go ahead. Yes, that reminds me. I'm so sorry. That reminds me of the video that y'all share on like what is good feedback and that, oh, that was also so helpful. It's such a um, accessible and universal design for learning way to teach people how to collaborate because we just assume, right? We're just like, mm. yeah, collaborate. Here's the opportunity. But for that experience in the courses with Edgefellow Academy, it was like, here's, we're going to do this and here's how you do this and here's why you do this. It was such a well-rounded learning experience in that way. So I love that you do that. Awesome. I, I do too. I actually mentioned it to my team. Me too. Me too. <laughs> I was like, you know, even as adults and, and we're instructional designers, just kind of setting that standard or creating a, a framework from which to offer what is considered good, you know, feedback is really nice because um, that's not part of the curriculum. Yeah, it's not. And, and so I was talking to my team. I was like, you know, a lot of undergrads have never actually been shown what peer or, or graduates, adults, you know, um, have been shown what good feedback, what is considered good feedback. And so mm. we're asking them to reply in discussions and give good feedback. Um, but yeah. most of them have no idea what good feedback yeah. is. Yeah. It's like <laughs> you're throwing them into a pool and you're like, okay, you need to swim to the other side now, even <laughs> yeah. though you've never been in a pool before. Um, right. uh, so uh, uh, we've also been doing a lot of research about that and, and the academics call that feedback literacy, right? So it's just yeah. like digital literacy or plain literacy, we have feedback literacy that we need to, we need to introduce to people. Um, and we need to, uh, again, like putting the social learning lens on, we have to model what the expectations are and what it looks like. So when we do yeah. our feedback onboarding, we even give examples of good feedback. So mm -hmm. say like, here's an example of what a really good bit of feedback for this criterion would look like, you know, mm -hmm. so we like, so yeah, and, and the, the feedback we're getting about how we facilitate the uh, peer feedback has been really great. I mean, it won't be perfect because you're sure. trusting a lot of yeah. people to, to um, kind of like participate meaningfully. And sometimes people just click next, next, next. And um, yeah. unfortunately that happens, but it's very likely that people are going to have a positive experience. And I can say that because um, we put out in our course evaluation survey, most people um, score either four or five out of five for the mm. question that we have, which is, um, th did this course change your perspective uh, about the value of um, peer feedback? Um, so I, I like to think that we are like um, changing the world <laughs> in terms of <laughs> a, a, adopting peer feedback because it's such a like under underappreciated but incredibly valuable tool um, yeah. that that can be amazing if it's done right. Yeah. yeah, that's the barrier, right? Is is that folks, I not only do our learners not know how to give the feedback, but I think the people that are facilitating the courses don't know how to explain how to do that. Um, mm. So I think, yeah, that's a, 
it's a really great I was just thinking like you've you're onto something. Like <laughs> we need to we need to tell more people. We need to change the world. Yes. <laughs> uh, because it really is. It's I see it in our classes like in you know Jess and I are both in higher ed and I think higher ed um online courses tend to really rely on like discussion boards which are so not useful <laughs> the way that people use them currently. It's always like um a mini paper prompt that everybody says the same thing. And then you're supposed to somehow respond to the same thing that you've already shared. Right. Which is not a useful thing. So I think that the, the idea that teaching folks how peer review works or teaching folks how discussion works in an online way Mm -hmm. and, and what we're looking for, like those are those meta processes that we don't focus on but totally need to because it really does make a difference yeah and uh, uh, like going into discussion i mean it's uh, weird how much of an influence we can have on the quality of discussions so Mm -hmm. um uh, just the tone that again modeling the tone that we model in our course communications so the the language we use as facilitators sets a standard um so if we use highly formal, highly academic tone in a discussion forum, it's very intimidating for learners, especially learners whose first language isn't English, right? right. Um, and then all of a sudden, there's it feels you're reading this first post and people are like being very, very, they're using very technical language and you feel like you have to um, uh, like model that language. And then it, it's a massive barrier that's very difficult to overcome. And it, it's, you know, like unless you've got a, quite a bit of confidence you won't be participating in discussions. Um, uh, and, and that's one of the things we talk about in the social learning course is, is inclusion. Um, and yeah. we, we try to model accessible language so that we can include people who don't, um, don't feel comfortable writing in that discourse or adopting that discourse. Yeah, I was, uh, there was two things I was going to mention. I, as soon as you said that, I was like, yeah, inclusion, <laughs> inclusion. I was thinking, <laughs> and blogging, yes. Um, but one thing I was going to say, yeah, it, I, the peer feedback, the direction or modality in which, or not modality, but kind of the process in which you present it, I really am like, oh, well, that's like really nice guided peer feedback. There's like, it's guiding you on how to do it. So I, I, I support mm-hmm. that. <laughs> <laughs> It's like guided meditation versus yes. meditation. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Good good point, Jess. Well, um, we're nearing the end of our time, but I want to make sure that we have um, an opportunity to talk about what you see as the benefits of social learning um, and maybe some of the challenges of social learning if we're thinking about it in the context of designing online learning benefits and challenges. What would you say, Will? Yeah, so um, I actually, we, we kind of like started hinting toward this. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so social learning, it, to some extent, sometimes is like playing with fire. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, I, I think, um, Jess, you, you can probably relate to this like anecdote. So gamification, I'm also a massive fan of gamification. But I mm-hmm. think when gamification became a buzzword, people started abusing it. You know, mm-hmm. um, they started throwing points, badges, and leaderboards at everything, uh, plus, uh, including things that that are, like won't benefit from gamification. And then, you know, that that means you're creating like more distractions than a learning experience. Um, and I feel the same way about social learning. 
Um, social learning has to be done very thoughtfully because it can be, if it's not done right, you could um, have very detrimental effects um, mm. uh, to the learning experience. Um, uh, there's this, uh, yeah, so um, uh, there's this term that um, the cooperative learning people like to talk, they, they, they say, they call it, um, uh, 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 I've forgotten the word now. And I've even written it down somewhere. Um, <laughs> so, um, uh, so, okay, I it's will remember like it. I'll bring point. it. It's almost like a tipping point. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Where you like, you're pushing the social learning to a certain level, but if you go past, I don't know, this is my mm. interpretation. Yeah. <laughs> so I could be wrong. Um, yeah. but like, if, if you get to a certain point to where you can only push it so far and you it really depends on the context i get i know that's yeah. super vague but <laughs> yeah yeah definitely so uh, so the example of the word i was thinking for, about was uh, you get positive interdependence and that is like mm. when you know uh, when people rely on each other and it's a good thing or when people interact with each other and, and depend on each other and it's a good thing but you also get negative interdependence um mm. where it, 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 sometimes if you especially in group learning and i think this is where yeah. Social learning gets such a bad reputation because group yeah. learning is often facilitated so poorly. <laughs> and I, yes. it's a terrible thing for me to say, but uh, we all we have all been in a group learning experience where um, the facilitator just said, you four, go do the project. Uh, you know? Every time. Exactly, every time. right? And then uh, uh, th that's a problem. So the brand of social learning gets this terrible like, reputation because... Um, the moment you then say, let's do a social learning program to someone who has to make the decision, or like has to approve it, they immediately think back to school days where they had to do all the work. And then you got this person that people call the social loafer doing, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, just sitting, you know, being a bench warmer. But if that uh, exercise of that group learning experience was facilitated better, if each person um, had their own a role in the group and they were accountable to that group and if you um, got all of your team members to give each other feedback um, at the end of the experience it could be so much more valuable but yeah unfortunately that's not um, how it's done <laughs> um, yeah. so the, I think the point I have is that um, social learning can be very very valuable if we do it well um, and in, in terms of uh, like um, uh, the benefits are, I'm also going to be quite careful about saying, because if you, if you read like any blog post about um, social learning, they'll be like, oh, it's got all of these awesome benefits. Like um, generally it can lead to like positive learning outcomes and um, uh, like people are more motivated. They can be, uh, they'll be more inspired to complete their work. There's more accountability and there's mm -hmm. a promotive discourse, you know, like people can encourage each other. Um, there can also be better self-efficacy after the experience. Like all of this stuff, like it, it, there have been studies to prove that, but yeah. I, I, I think we can, we can reap those benefits if we facilitate those experiences very, very carefully. Um, mm. And so uh, like maybe we can think about it. Uh, yes, um, that's kind of like the, the, the pinch of salt that I'll add in there. Um, yeah. I think... So in terms, so we have all those benefits and they can work and we can get all those things if we do it properly. But practically, there's also some awesome stuff we can do. You know, so if, if we think about like 
one of the cohorts for instructional design principles had a thousand people in the cohort. Oh, wow. Of, yeah, it was incredible. The, the, but just think about the amount of brain power that we've all collected in one group of, yeah. you know, the amount of energy, the amount of potential. And if we can harness that potential really well, then just imagine the, the amount of interactions we can facilitate and the amount of learning we facilitate. Um, and then, you know, we, people can, yeah, so we, we've got like a high potential for learning. We've got more people who, who can explain things to each other in different ways that we might not have been able to think about. They can give us amazing feedback about how to make the course better. Um, they can, um, uh, yeah, in discussions, they'll answer the questions before you have to step in and answer them. And by them answering them, they also get a bunch of good feelings and they also learn a bunch of stuff. And then it, it just, there's so many benefits, but uh, like, I'll also go back to the peer feedback. Um, mm. uh, we would not be able to facilitate, like as a small facilitation team for a thousand learners, we won't be able to facilitate feedback of that quality in any other way than using feedback, peer feedback. Right, of course. Um, yeah. So yeah, uh, like practically, I think there are all these benefits. Um, uh, in terms of, um, I, I think you also mentioned like, challenges for implementing yeah. social learning um yeah so I, I, I guess I've, i mentioned earlier that we've got convincing decision makers and so when we did research about why social learning doesn't happen as much in the office or like in the workplace especially um one of the biggest barriers was convincing people to buy into it um mm. and again i think it's because there's like br the brand of social learning is is off you know and sure. um People, uh, if we look at that collaborative learning gamut, there are so many different types of social learning experiences. So when we create our proposals, we have to be very careful about how we articulate what we're going to do. Um, sure. And that will make it more practical and we can, it'll be easier for us to hopefully get buy-in about that. Um, and to solve that, yeah, like a pilot program is great. Um, business case, like, you know, think, put yourself in the shoe of the decision maker and how can you yeah. like create a business case? Um, uh, yeah, a prototype. Um, uh, yeah, I guess I mentioned that already. Um, yeah, it's uh, helpful though. <laughs> the, the other big challenge that comes up is um, uh, people often say like engagement. We, we can't get engagement in our online course. Uh, like I don't mm. know if the two of you have the mm -hmm. same, <laughs> you know, like this is like a very consistent refrain um, in our discussions, we have like, mm -hmm. a, like questions about the course. Like the first thing that usually comes up is how do I get people to engage? Um, and uh, I think that comes back to two the things that we call, um, engines of collaborative learning. And the, the first one is presence. And that comes from the community of inquiry framework. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, 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 I like to think of presence and this is not strictly according to the definition of the inquiry framework, but sure. um, uh, I like to think of presence as this idea of like everyone's focused on the same thing and they're sharing a similar goal and that you're able to participate. Um, and uh, I think here, especially in, uh, like in terms of presence, um, accessibility is really important. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, people often frame accessibility in terms of like being able to access or view material but uh, accessibility is also about participation and my occupational therapist wife will remind me of that very frequently <laughs> you know so it's about how do you uh, how, how can you encourage participation and um one of the mechanics 
that we use in the, the courses we have is we have we don't make it compulsory to attend the webinar. Um, and then we record it and we put it in discussion and then you can um, still participate in the discussion even if you weren't there. Um, mm -hmm. And you know that means that people who are on the other side of the world at a different time zone don't have to wake up at two o'clock in the morning to come and um, participate. They can still have some meaningful interaction about um, the experience. Um, mm. And then the other thing, uh, as I mentioned earlier, is also inclusion. Um, so I think the, the big um, uh, um, benefit of an inclusive learning experience is psychological safety. Um, yeah. And I'll, I always insist that um, one of the reasons why children are probably like the best learners ever is because they're, they're not scared of asking questions that make them seem silly. Um, mm -hmm. And if we can hopefully create an, an environment where people feel so comfortable that they can ask any question without feeling silly, imagine the potential for learning, you know, mm, uh, and that yeah. again goes back to like modeling language in our discussions. So uh, just using simple language, we use emojis because it makes us like feel more casual, like it's expressive. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. so it, like small things like that can, can really help. And then um, in terms of um, psychological safety, I like to think of it as a scaffolding participation. Um, so, uh, like, give learners small wins um, mm -hmm. so that they build up to their first um, breakout room exercise where they will switch on their, their camera, for example. Because um, that's yeah. a very intimidating thing to do. Like, yeah. I, I personally, like, I, I find it terrifying to do. So, yeah. how can we, like, build people's confidence in small ways until when they get to that, they're willing to step out of their shell a bit more. Um, so, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, uh, those, I, I think, are two big challenges and small examples of how we can try to overcome them. I mean, it's very difficult, especially in an online environment, to do that. But right. I think over time, hopefully, we'll, we'll start finding ways to, to help with that. Yeah, I'm feeling so inspired. <laughs> I know. Just, oh, I have so many ideas right now. I better start writing things down. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, I think that it was an absolutely amazing conversation. Um, and I'm super excited for this episode to come out. I think people are going to learn so much from you, Will. Um, anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we jump off? Um, yeah, uh, firstly, thank you so much for inviting me on to the podcast. It is um, definitely something that I'm going to cherish and I'm going to like tell all my friends uh, about <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> um, amazing. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to tell everyone about um, like this amazing opportunity to, to share the space with these two awesome people. And um, it, it's been such a pleasure to um, talk about something that I think all three of us are very passionate about. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I've, I've really appreciated. I think um, in terms of a um, uh, like a final message, message that I would have um, is to maybe put out a call to action um, for everyone, and that that's aligned with the the kind of mission that EduFlow Academy has. Um, and that mission is to we want to change the way people think about what learning online can be like. Um, mm. I think just like people have negative like thoughts about what group learning is um people have negative ideas about what learning or well, maybe not so negative but they have um 
paradigms about what learning online is like. They think that learning online is videos and quizzes. Um, you watch mm -hmm. a video, you do a quiz, and then if you're lucky, maybe that you'll get a little drag and drop. Um, but <laughs> I think that hopefully through Edu of Flow Academy, we can show that there are different ways that that we can um, create really, really meaningful um, uh, interactions and learning experiences without just relying on videos and quizzes. Um, yeah. And uh, I hope that uh, everyone will kind of join us in that mission to change the world of, of what people think it, learning online should be. Oh, amazing. Well, uh, thank you so much again, Will. And um, thank you, everyone who is listening. We will see you on our next episode of Higher ID. Bye. Adios. Bye.